0: This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. And welcome to our special Uranium Christmas episode. It is a very special episode. We have John Gorman from the Canadian Nuclear Association. When they call, I pick up. And uh, a really interesting interview we had. So that is coming up. We talked about SMRs, small module reactors. And as you'll learn in this interview, it sounds like you can put these on the back of a truck. I was thinking, maybe I can get one of these. Maybe I should get one. Surprise my girlfriend one day and say, hey, honey, I have a surprise, SMR. SMR is waiting for us downstairs. I don't know the price, but we shall find out. I did ask. Uh, John was uncertain. So that is very exciting. And uranium stocks, speaking of uranium, continue to go higher. They did take a break. Cameco, probably the most frustrating trade of the decade because all of a sudden uranium's taking off. And they have coronavirus cases at the Cigar Lake mine, one of their main mines, and they had to shut that down. So that just kind of kills sentiment a bit. But they were on a tear, uranium stock. Last it was trading, closed at sixteen ninety six on Monday on the Canadian Toronto Stock Exchange. Just to give you an idea, Cameco was sitting around 12 $13 all of November, even went down. Yeah, it was twelve, thirteen dollars, and now it's at seventeen. So that's a nice, probably a forty percent move. And some of these smaller ones have even gone further. I mean, UEC can continues seven percent uh, gain yesterday, and you know some of these stocks, like November thirtieth, UEC Uranium Energy Corp was at a dollar. Now it's at a dollar sixty. So that is quite a gain, sixty percent gain there in a matter of weeks. So if you look at the uranium price, this is kind of the mystifying thing. There's a bit of a mystery here. If you go to Cameco's site, they have the uranium price and the trade tech price is $29.70 for December 14th. The UXC price is twenty nine fifty. Uranium, as Cameco themselves will tell you, is a remarkably opaque market. I believe that's the word they used. So it's It's kind of hard to get a direct price, but these prices give you a pretty close idea. We're looking at around 30 bucks per pound. And kind of the interesting thing about this is in July, they were up at $34 and $35 a pound. So, what is going on? In a sense, like we're back to our problem. The uranium price hasn't gone anywhere. If anything, it's gone lower, and the stocks have taken off. Now, we all know the stock market is a forward leading indicator. So, maybe the guys on Wall Street see something. But I mean, people have been talking about the supply crunch for years and years now. Has it finally arrived? I guess we'll see. I have a different theory. I think money is running out of places to park itself. I think the market is high. Are you going to go into Amazon right now? Are you Are going to go into Apple at a $2 trillion market cap and hope that it goes to $3 trillion? Even the oil stocks have gone higher in the last six weeks. So all of a sudden, they're not as attractive because you're not sure if you put money into oil stocks now. Will it pull back? Uh, There's a lot of oil coming on the market, apparently. So I think it's back to this idea that money is running out of places to park itself. And so all of a sudden, uranium is one of these last sectors that still haven't taken off. And there's value there, so people are starting to jump in. What's really taking the venture exchange by storm, we were talking about it a week or two ago, are these psychedelic stocks which are exploding. I've tracked the rare earth. I tracked a little bit the weed uh, bull market, but the rare earth bull market was probably the most spectacular I had seen up until the psychedelic stock bull market, and that's happening now. Go check out some of those stocks, and you'll see the moves that are being made. They're multiplying. Uh, I saw one stock was up a hundred percent yesterday. Now, are all those companies great? And it, no, I, I think what's going on because all of them are going up, basically. And again, I think it's this idea: okay, if you're looking for growth and spectacular, you know, gains, if you're not going into crypto, which a lot of these investors and Wall Street people can't, where do you go? And really, psychedelic stocks are the only game in town. So and uranium. So. I think that's what's going on here. I think these are money flows, and I think it's money looking for opportunity. So, that is your theory of the week on this week's special uranium episode. And we're going to get into this Cameco story here right away. Uh, Before we get into our news, if you want a special gift for the miner in your life, look no further than the northernminer.com homepage and go to the bottom left, and you will see a link. To the art and humor of JK, which is a one-of-a-kind piece of Canadiana, a joke book of mining cartoons from the Northern Miner from the last 20 or 25 years, expertly edited by Issa Cunanan and John Cumming. And that is one special present. So that is available. I believe you go to northernminer.com slash JK. That was the website we determined. Nice and simple. northernminer.com slash JK. Or if you really start running low on time and you need something truly last minute, buy a digital subscription to the Northern Miner. Just go to northernminer.com slash subscribe and uh, voila, just print out your little card and your little password and good to go. So if you're looking for that last minute gift for that miner or investor in your life, there you have it. So if you want to find us online, go to northernminer.com. If you want to find us on Twitter, Find us at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner and on Facebook and LinkedIn as well as YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news and turning to the website, Cameco suspends production at Cigar Lake. Let's take a look. It's by Bruno Venditti, Mining.com. Cameco announced today that it will temporarily suspend production at its Cigar Lake uranium mine in northern Saskatchewan over the coming weeks due to the increasing risks posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, this probably sounds worse than it is in the sense that Christmas is here anyway, so they're probably only closing a week early and staying closed for a couple of weeks longer would be my guess. It is a kind of a killer in the let's see how the uranium stocks react to this. That is from yesterday, and they have a press release, and Tim Gitzel, CAMA president and CEO said, the safety of our workers, their families, and community is our top priority. We have had six positive tests at our northern operations in recent weeks, including three at Cigar Lake. While the protocols we have put in place have to date allowed us to effectively manage these cases, there are broader risks we don't control. Cigar Lake was put on care and maintenance during the first wave of the pandemic in March and restarted operations in September. At peak production this fall, there were about 300 workers at the Cigar Lake site. Gitzel said that Cameco plans to increase its purchases of uranium in the market, quote, to secure uranium, we need to meet our sales commitments. Now, some people may not be familiar with what's going on here. Longtime listeners will be who heard our Cameco conference call from way back. And what Cameco is doing is they are actually buying uranium off the spot market to fulfill order requirements because their concern, my interpretation here, their concern was that other players, particularly Kazakhstan, if I understand the situation correctly, was dumping on the market and was basically flooding the market. And so the price, of course, of uranium went down. So Cameco was stuck basically holding the bag as far as what do we do? Our commodity is being dumped on. How do we deal with this? And they came up with a pretty novel idea, which is the, the uranium we have promised to our customers. Let's simply just buy it off the market to reduce supply rather than getting it from our mines. And sometimes this stuff, I don't know if it's cheaper, but it's comparable from my understanding. Otherwise, why would they do it, right? So that is what they've been doing. And they've been doing this for a little while now, like maybe two or three years, I would hazard a guess to say. So that is what's going on. I'll just repeat that. Gitzel said that Cameco plans to increase its purchases of uranium in the market, quote, to secure uranium we need to meet our sales commitments. It's a very interesting move. Quote, our deliveries to date have not been materially impacted by COVID-19, nor do we expect there will be a material impact on our remaining 2020 deliveries. He added, Cigar Lake was previously expected to generate 9 million pounds of uranium for the company in 2020. As of September 30th, Cigar Lake had produced 2.3 million pounds of uranium concentrates. So, they had planned $9 millions for the entire year, and by the third quarter, they had only £2.3 million produced. Uh, while Cigar Lake is on care and maintenance, Cameco expects to incur costs of between $8 and $10 million per month, which will be expensed directly to cost of sales. And I didn't realize this. The Cigar Lake operation is owned by Cameco, only 50%, 50.025%. Orano, Canada, Idemitsu Canada and TEPCO resources. So there you have it, headline of the day. Camaco suspends Cigar Lake, and you have another interesting story. So Cadelco, I was corrected. I used to call it Codelco until I got a little note from a friend that it is actually Cadelco. Chile's Cadelco, the world's largest copper mine, has pledged to cut Greenhouse gas emissions by 70% by 2030. This is part of a trend we've been seeing. BHP, I believe Rio Tinto uh, have also taken part in this. And so let's take a closer look. This is by Cecilia Jemazmi, mining.com. Cadelco, the world's largest copper producer, has outlined sustainability plans in five areas of action for its operations and projects, including goals to cut carbon emissions by 70% reduce inland water consumption by 60% and recycling 65% of its industrial waste by 2030. The state-owned miner, which in 2017 planned to sell, quote, green copper at a premium price to customers using more sustainable practices like renewable energy, now favors a broader initiative. And finally here, the plan centered around five key points, seeks to reduce around three quarters of the company's carbon emissions by creating what it calls a, quote, 100% clean energy matrix, end quote. This encompasses replacing all underground production equipment with electric vehicles and machinery. It also involves participating in search of new clean energy sources such as green hydrogen, which I'm hearing more and more of. I think that comes up in our interview later. And they also have a water problem there in Chile. Uh, Codelco, which hands over all its profits to the state, has also committed to lower its water footprint by more than half current levels. The vital element has become a bone of contention for the expansion plans of the miner and several other companies, particularly lithium producers. The majority of Chile's mines are located in the Atacama Desert, the world's driest, where a mostly abandoned practice of drying water from the salt flat has left the area practically water depleted. So they're dealing with their water issues. And we have a quote from Octavio Arenada, the top boss, who I assume is the CEO, we are taking charge of our purpose as a company to strengthen the sustainable development of Chile and the world with defined goals and deadlines. So there you have it. Cadelco has also pledged to cut emissions by 2030. They may want to listen to our interview later because, fascinatingly, these SMRs can actually help power mines, as John Gorman explains. So... Stay tuned for that. Any mine operators, you definitely want to listen to this interview coming up. Uh, Put you ahead of the curve. It's an exclusive Northern Miner interview. Anyways, continuing on. Wheaton Precious Metals and Capstone Mining have struck a deal whereby the streaming company will pay $150 million for a share of the silver output from Capstone's Cozumine Copper Mine in Zacatecas State, Mexico. In 2019, the mine produced 35.84 million pounds copper, 1.16 million ounce silver and 18.46 million pounds zinc. Wheaton has agreed to buy 50% of Cosamine's silver output until 10 million ounces have been delivered. Thereafter, it will receive 33% of silver production for the life of the mine. Okay, so they gave $150 million to Capstone for half of 10 million ounces and 33% of the rest that comes out of the mine. Wheaton president and CEO hailed the deal for adding to the company's metal streams. For five years, beginning in 2021, attributable silver production is forecast to average 820,000 ounces per year. For Capstone, the deal is, quote, transformational. Oh, $150 million will do that to you, said Chief Executive Darren Pilot. It gives the company one of, quote, one of the lowest debt positions among base metal producers at a time when we are expecting significant copper production and cash flow growth. The $150 million for 50% of Cosamine Silver is a strong validation of the ultimate mine life potential we expect to demonstrate through further resource to reserve conversion and ongoing exploration." I have to say though, my sense is the market is starting to cool on these streaming deals, not on the part of the streamers, but on the people taking the deals. Remember Solgold? How their board was starting to get very annoyed. Was it Wheaton Precious Metals? That also got the stream there, and it was a significant amount of what's a ginormous project over there. So I think if you're a company taking a streaming deal, I think you're going to get a little bit more pushback than you would have, say, three or four years ago. And they are using the funding to pay down their net debt to zero. The company will also lower its cost of capital, increase free cash flow potential. So there you have it, another streaming deal. And we have some forecasts, so pay attention to the Northern Miner homepage because you're going to get a lot of outlooks. See, That time of year, my favorite time of year as far as uh, stories, I love the outlooks because we're all trying to figure out how to get a little richer here. Base metals price forecast to rise sharply in 2021. This is by Carl A. Williams. And he interviewed CPM Group's Director of Commodities and Asset Management, Carlos Sanchez, And remember, CPM Group is Jeffrey Christian's organization, who we interviewed a few episodes ago and will have back sometime soon. And so Carlos Sanchez says there will be an increase in prices. Quote, we're already seeing normal supply and demand dynamics returning to pre-pandemic levels for the base metal markets. Although going into 2021, the demand side will be aided by increased spending by governments around the world primarily through investment in infrastructure projects, driving increases in base metal prices. He also predicts prices to rise again in 2022, albeit at, quote, more moderate levels. The U.S., Sanchez noted, is becoming increasingly self-sufficient in several commodities, including copper, and with much of the world's nickel produced in Indonesia and Philippines, he doesn't envisage any major trade issues to arise between the U.S. and China over sourcing these critical metals. And scrolling down a bit, quote, we expect zinc and nickel prices to rise sharply, followed by more moderate increases in nickel and aluminum prices, with lead prices lagging. In 2021, Sanchez forecasts zinc to trade at $2,628 per ton, up 17%, from $2,246 per ton in 2020, and nickel rising 14.5%. He projects aluminum to be up 12.8%, copper to be up 9.2%, and lead to be up 1.7%. And in 2022, Sanchez, it's pretty precise. In 2022, Sanchez predicts zinc will be up 8.7% from 2021, and copper 6.3%, aluminum 5.3%, and nickel 4.1%. Now, I think we're in a bull market here. We're coming to metal prices here shortly which is why we're doing all these outlooks now. And let's just go, we have precious metals. So we have an interview with another CPM group individual, Vice President of Research Rohit Savant. And he said in an email to the Northern Miner, hostilities between the U.S. and China will remain, will remain irrespective of who is in the White House. However, Trump's approach to trade negotiations provided a haven for precious metals, Whereas Biden is expected to bring the Chinese to the negotiating table by working with U.S. allies to collectively put pressure on Beijing, which could be less supportive of silver and gold prices. Uh, dysfunctional Congress will create uncertainty and likely upward pressure, Mr. Savant also says. And he also mentioned Biden's, the Biden administration's focus on green energy initiatives, which According to Savant, should support silver and platinum group metals, PGMs. These metals, he said, are used in a range of green technologies, such as solar panels, fuel cells, and electrolyzers, and will help meet the goals of the Democratic Party's Green New Deal, which aims to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Quote, the ability of Biden to push these initiatives through will again depend on who has control of the U.S. Senate. And quote. Well, that's for sure. So to the forecast, we go, and Savant forecasts gold to trade up 7.3% to $1,897 next year. These are average prices, by the way, I believe. Uh, Silver will also jump to $26.50, an increase of 30%, so big predictions in silver from $20.34 currently. Likewise, PGMs are on the rise. Platinum should go to $1,081 per ounce, average price up 22.1% and palladium to $2,313 per ounce, up 6.8% from an average of $2,166 per ounce in 2020. And finally, we can't miss this, a combination of improving economic conditions and a commitment by various major central banks to keep monetary policy ultra-loose is expected to be very beneficial to all commodity prices, end quote. Savant said, so there you have it. Precious metals, PGMs expected to go higher. Now that we've seen the predictions, let's see where things actually are. So let's turn to metal prices. metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on December 15th, gold is trading at $1,842.53 per ounce. That is $23 lower than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $24.22 per ounce. That is, that is $0.38 cents lower than last week's quote. Platinum is trading at $1,015.13. That is $11 lower than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,323.17 per ounce. That is $6 higher than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is unchanged. At $3.51 per pound, aluminum is unchanged at $0.92 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at $0.93 per pound. Nickel is significantly higher at $7.80 per pound. That is $0.53 higher than last week. Tin is also higher at $8.87 per pound. That is $0.22 higher than last week. Cobalt is lower at $14.32 per pound. That is $0.19 lower than last week. And zinc pushes higher to $1.27 per pound. That is $0.02 higher than last week's quote. So what do we see? A bit of a pullback in the precious metals, a consolidation in industrial metals, but at lofty levels with nickel, tin, and zinc pushing higher. So... Are they playing catch-up to copper, perhaps? Maybe, as the CPM group was saying, maybe some of these industrial metals will perform differently, but we do see continued strength in industrial metals, suggesting, once again, we are in a bull market. Not financial advice, just an opinion, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have John Gorman, president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association, also known as the CNA and former president and CEO of the Canadian Solar Industries Association. And he is going to talk to us about the latest goings on in the nuclear industry, particularly from a Canadian perspective and almost nobody is better positioned than John Gorman. It's a fascinating interview and uh, you hear about his fascinating background and all of it. So. Without any further delay, I hope you enjoy the interview, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today on the podcast, I'm very pleased to welcome John Gorman, who is president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association and also former president and CEO of the Canadian Solar Industries Association. John, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much, Adrian. I'm I'm thrilled to be here.
0: I'm thrilled to have you too. You know, a lot of people reach out to be on the podcast, uh, but when I see the president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association, I don't waste time and I reply to that email. Maybe just before we get into what's going on in the big picture, how did you end up in this situation, did you take physics? Uh, what's your background and you're Canadian? Uh, tell, tell me a bit about how you got here.
1: Well, you know, I, I didn't take physics. I took uh, classical studies. <laughs> so it's been a sort of circuitous uh, route to get here, Adrian. but um, you know, I'd say about uh, just over twenty years ago or so, I started uh, like a lot of people to get pretty alarmed about global warming and and climate change generally so at that time I I decided that I would start seeing what I could do in my daily work life to ensure that it was geared towards doing something that I felt would be helpful in terms of uh, combating climate change and my expertise really for these last 20 years or so uh, has been in energy and in particular around electricity so it just really made sense uh, to me anyway uh, 27 years ago that I would start looking at how electricity could play a role in decarbonizing different sectors of our economy, especially using clean electricity, because really electricity is the the building block on which economies are able to decarbonize different sectors. So take electric vehicles, for example, and, and the uh, emergence of electric vehicles. Well, that that's going to require more electricity and it has to be clean, that sort of thing. So I uh, increasingly started uh, focusing on clean electricity. I became a, a developer of renewable energy projects. I spent about seven and a half years as the head of the Solar Industries Association. But at the end of the day, uh, Adrian, you know, I've been working for 20 years trying to lower the cost of wind and solar and I think the world has accomplished that. Wind and solar is now actually quite inexpensive but 20 years ago when I started we were at 36% non-emitting electricity on the world's electricity grids and today 20 years later we're still at 36%. We haven't made a dent in it despite the remarkable growth of wind and solar. And so I recognize that, um, like many other people, that we're going to need something that's going to work in partnership with wind and solar other than coal or gas. And uh, that's uh, what got me into nuclear.
0: That is so fascinating. Classics. I mean, I love it because I actually talk on this podcast sometimes about the virtue of the humanities degrees. I did a master's in English, and just before we continue, did you specialize or did you just do a general classics degree?
1: I did a general classics degree at a liberal arts college in the United States uh, called called Thomas More College in Merrimack, New Hampshire, and uh, it was a fantastic course, but it was a, a, a generalist type thing. So each year you studied all of your your subjects, uh, whether it was you know history or philosophy or religion, but all of those uh, subjects, the courses, were geared towards a particular um, era in time. So when I entered, my first year was around modernity. So everything that we studied in that particular year in in each of the courses uh was relevant to that particular period of time and then the next year we did ancient studies and so on through the cycles so it was a wonderful base and and i would argue given how quickly things change uh in in the world it's important to have a base like that because we're, we're struggling with so many big issues right now and then i went on to do uh, a business degree so
0: and i couldn't agree more it's funny i almost went into uh masters in neoplatonism but the professor ended up going off to the states he ended up going to Emory, i think and it was saint thomas more college anyway we'll, we'll get back to the uh, so tell me about the nuclear industry where are we globally where are we in canada what i mean from your vantage point where is nuclear 10 years after fukushima
1: so fukushima uh, was uh was a was a major setback for the industry which as I understand, it was in in the process of uh, of expansion, uh, you know, back in twenty uh, in 2011 when Fukushima hit, and of course the the immediate impact of that was the Japanese um, taking most of their plants offline and taking a real serious look at perhaps not bringing nuclear back uh, altogether. Of course, since then it's uh, changed quite a bit on a plant by plant basis. They've been Reinstating the nuclear plant, and now we see that um, the direction that they're headed in now really is again dependent on nuclear, which is a really positive thing because Japan requires, you know, has very limited options in terms of how it's going to produce its electricity. And if it's not with nuclear, then it would have to be with imported uh, coal or gas or something like that. So it's good that it's back on track. Uh, but but it did disrupt, especially in the I'll call it the free world, it uh, it disrupted the progress that was being made on uh, nuclear uh, generally. Um, I'm sure it didn't help in in Germany either, of course, where we've seen big commitments to to scale back uh, nuclear. And we're only now seeing uh, the free world basically committing again to building these uh, larger conventional plants. But it's definitely on the uptick again. Uh, We're looking at the policies in the United States and in the United Kingdom, for example, uh, very committed to building new conventional plants and new small modular reactors, which I know we'll be talking about shortly. And here in Canada, we made the decision to do a refurbishment of our plants in Ontario, which is our most populous province, of course. Nuclear has been providing about two-thirds of Ontario's electricity for the last 60 years, and it is a massive, uh, I think it's the largest infrastructure project in Canada right now, $26 billion. It's a 10-year project. It's going to keep the nuclear in Ontario going until the 2060s and it's upon this uh, massive investment that the nuclear industry is firing on all cylinders here in Canada, and uh, we are doing some very remarkable things in nuclear medicine and in small modular reactors. So, Adrian, the short answer to your question is it was a setback for the industry, uh, but now, especially with the pressures of climate change, uh, we're seeing a, a resurgence of, uh, of of nuclear in the free world, and uh, China and Russia are also making very aggressive um, investments in, into nuclear energy.
0: So it sounds like it's come back quite strongly. Now, am I correct in my assumption that the majority of electricity that is not nuclear comes from coal and coal generated power plants? Is that true, or where does our electricity? If it's not nuclear, where what's giving us our electricity?
1: So, from a from a global perspective, about two thirds of all electricity comes from coal and gas-fired electricity generation, a very significant amount. In Canada, the situation is quite different. We have a fairly clean electricity grid. About eighty-two uh, percent of our electricity is generated from non-emitting sources, primarily hydro and then nuclear power which is mostly in Ontario and uh, New Brunswick, and then wind and solar, which are smaller, smaller amounts. So we've got an amazing, amazing hydro and nuclear resources here in Canada, which have given us a very clean electricity grid. We have a couple of pockets in Western Canada and Eastern Canada that still need to be decarbonized, but we've got really a great asset here to do this uh, switch over to to a lower carbon uh, economy using clean electricity.
0: Very interesting. So Would you agree then when like we had a conference call with the Cameco and that we listened to on this podcast and we had the CEO and Tim Gitzel was on the the conference call. And the way he generally opens his conference calls is that ultimately Cameco is a part of this solution towards our emission of greenhouse gases and that ultimately the nuclear industry is ultimately an environmental a choice at the end of the day do you agree with that or do i
1: you know like do you agree with that sentiment the the sentiment that uh that nuclear is an environmental choice
0: yes that it ultimately this is one of the main if not the solution towards our you know decarbonization yeah. or whatever the term is yes, that you so want to
1: look so uh, look adrian what people sometimes fail to understand Is the enormity of the challenge that we face when it comes to decarbonizing our economies, and I think you know most people now. I think the majority of people understand that climate change is an existential threat, right? We're we're on a mad dash now to try to hit a sort of net zero 2050 in order to avoid uh, global warming of you know more than 1.5 degrees, uh, because we know uh, overwhelmingly uh, from the science that, uh, you know, warming beyond that point is going to lead to some fairly catastrophic effects and impacts. I spend most of my time talking about electricity, and it would be easy to say, you know, well, all we have to do is change the way that we produce electricity and we're all set. But the fact of the matter is, electricity in the world, and including Canada, is only responsible for 20% of our energy needs. So, you know, you and I just finished speaking about how Most of the world, you know, just the electricity portion, 66% of that electricity portion is being driven by, produced by, generated by coal and gas, which is, you know, heavily emitting and uh, one of the leading causes of global warming. Well, that's only 20% of the problem. Then we've got 80% of our energy needs overall that are outside of electricity. And that 80 percent is completely fossil fuels. So we have this massive challenge in front of us to try to uh, wean ourselves off of uh, fossil fuels. And uh, nuclear is going to be a very, very important part of that for reasons that we we will get into. But it's going to take more than nuclear. It's going to take every single clean energy solution that we can throw at the problem. And so that's going to mean continued uh, investments and rollouts in uh, wind and solar it's certainly going to mean lots of uh, nuclear but i think we're also going to have to be throwing in carbon capture and storage uh, hydrogen fuels into the mix there's a whole suite of things that we're really going to have to combine and you know the mining sector uh, is a, is a, a fantastic example of the type of transformation that's going to happen have to happen in each of these uh, difficult to decarbonize industries.
0: So tell me more about the practicalities then of this. We've seen these SMRs, or small modular reactors, start to be discussed. I think it was six months ago, a year ago. Is that what you're seeing? Is that going to be the rollout? And how soon will we see this and how safe is it?
1: Let me start by um, describing what small modular reactors are. So small modular reactors uh, are also fission-based, like the conventional nuclear Reactors, uh, but they're they're smaller, as their name would imply, and they are much less expensive. Not only because they're smaller, but because they're essentially manufactured in manufacturing plants, rather than being these enormous infrastructure projects that are done far away from a the city. These things are actually manufactured in a manufacturing plant. In some instances, the whole unit is actually fueled inside the manufacturing plant and put on the back of a train or truck. And brought to a remote site uh, where it will uh, sit and operate for you know as as much as ten or twenty years without needing to be refueled, uh, uh-huh. and they're they're also mobile in in many cases as well. So if you've got a mining operation that requires uh, clean electricity and clean heat, high temperature heat, and you're you know working from from location to location, you could actually be moving it around. They're very uh, flexible, and in my business when when we call it flexible, it's really sort of um, Responsive, which means you can ramp up and down the heat and electricity very quickly. So, if you're supporting wind or solar, which only produces when the wind blows or the sun shines, then these small modular reactors are able to, to provide electricity to follow those those loads and things. Um, and the other thing I'd say, Adrian, is these things are amazing at uh, producing very high temperature clean heat as well as electricity, which makes it different from something like wind or solar or other forms of electricity generation, because that heat can be used in all sorts of things uh, in the extraction industries. They could be used to actually produce just physical heat for your, your mining operations, or they could be used for uh, creating hydrogen for the mobile fleets of mining operations, right? So they're this very, very versatile tool that can both produce electricity and high temperature clean heat, and uh, you know if you want, produce hydrogen as well. So a pretty ideal solution for these remote uh, mines
0: i'm actually surprised at how small they actually are the way you describe them as being able to be put on a train or the back of a truck Um, and it's interesting because i think when a lot of mining people think about uranium and nuclear they're thinking about uranium producers and uranium mining companies providing energy or uranium for these reactors but what you're saying is some of these smrs can actually power your mining operation so even if you're a gold and silver operation or whatever this might be actually an option.
1: Well, it, it it is an option and I'd say in the Canadian context the mining sector is the one that is most keen and most anxious to discover whether small modular reactors can meet their energy challenges. So I'm I'm not the mining uh, expert here of course but I I do know that, you know, anywhere from 15 to 40% of the cost of running a mine depending on what kind of mine it is is, you know, comes is energy costs. And uh, while the mining sector, you know, has been a leader in terms of trying to adopt clean technologies, you know, some of those uh, mines that have brought in wind uh, and and solar, for example, whether it's uh, the Divic mine in Northwest Territories or the Raglan diamond mine here in uh, northern Canada, you know, those those have only relieved about 10% of the uh, reliance on diesel, right? And and diesel is so problematic, uh, as you know, for from a cost perspective, but also logistics and things. And so the promise of these small modular reactors is that you can bring them in and and uh, right-size the uh, reactors to the, the size of the mining operation and then use that clean electricity and clean heat to replace diesel. And, you know, the initial studies that have been done by the Canadian Mining Innovation Council, along with the Mining Association of Canada and the Nuclear Association, demonstrate that even the first of a kind small modular reactors are going to be saving these mining operations 50% of their energy costs and at the same time, you know, decarbonizing those operations which is so important. I don't know if you're aware of this Adrian, but in Canada here we have just announced that our carbon pricing regime is going to be going up $15 a year right till 2030 which is meaning, you know, we're going to hit $170 a ton that's a serious business challenge for these mining operations to to meet right so
0: absolutely yeah so it's a pressing concern so how safe are these smrs because if i'm a mining company and i'm hearing what you're saying i'm thinking okay that all sounds great but first of all do i need to hire a nuclear scientist like who, who runs this thing surely the regulations are intense and how safe is this
1: Well, you know, firstly, let me say that nuclear is uh, hands down the safest form of electricity generation on Earth, period, Uh, which, you know, again, surprises a a lot of people. But um, it's already an an incredibly uh, safe form of electricity generation. It's clean. There's no emissions. The full life cycle emissions from a a nuclear plant, including uranium mining and right down to uh, decommissioning is one of the lowest uh, life cycle emissions of any electricity production uh, less than solar equivalent to wind and these new reactors have uh, enhanced safety safety features built into them as well they're they're a new generation of technology so very safe much less expensive uh, very low carbon as i said they don't have to be refueled um you know in in some cases in 10 years and and in some cases um, even longer so um, they're really an ideal solution and as to the the regulatory uh, part of this canada actually has a competitive advantage here in the sense that our nuclear regulator which is a really uh, well-respected regulator globally has been given jurisdiction over the size of uh, small modular reactors that are suited for the mining industry and that means that the approval and environmental assessment process is much, much shorter than we would find in other nations. We're expecting to see the first small modular reactors available in 2026 in that sector. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we'll be seeing some of the larger ones uh, like Ontario Power Generation has announced that it's going to connect one to the electricity grid in 2028. The United States is already building out a few. Uh, Russia and China have already launched some. So they're here in in short order. And uh, we're working with the mining sector now to scope out its its needs so it's getting getting very close and it's quite exciting
0: it sounds like it 2026 isn't that far away tell me have any price numbers uh, any costs has that been thrown around or is that are we way too early for that
1: we do have uh we do have pretty sophisticated costings done on the different technologies and that was the basis on which uh the canadian mining innovation council and uh, the mining association of canada did their work in terms of SMRs in the mining sector. But the caveat to that is that until we get these things in the field and operated, we're not going to be able to completely nail down costs. So those first-of-a-kind ones are projects that we're going to be doing uh, with the industry and uh, hopefully with support from the federal and provincial levels of government.
0: That makes sense. It's like they say, no one wants to be first, nobody wants to be last. And uh, yeah, who wants to be the first to try out the SMR? Maybe maybe if you got deep pockets, right? So tell me this, as the president of the Canadian Nuclear Association, do you pay attention to supply of uranium? And Because in the mining sector, generally, when you're talking about uranium, you, there's all these uranium bulls, you know, who are investors, who are buying these mining companies because they see a huge supply crunch coming in this decade even the last three four weeks it's timely our conversation because the uranium stocks have actually started to really move and when we've seen cameco uh, up seven percent yesterday, the day before yesterday like they're really moving and the juniors even more do you pay attention to supply at all or
1: it's, it's not uh, it's not completely out of our purview. I mean, uh, companies okay. like Cameco, uh, one of the most, you know, most important uh, members in the association. Um, and so, you know, we're working with them very closely in, in, t- in terms of, you know, promoting the use of nuclear and, uh, you know, their company and things like that. But we, we don't, you know, we don't get deep into the weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, as your listeners probably know, you know, Cameco um, is... One of the world's largest producers of uranium, right? I think the world's second largest. From an export perspective, they, they export about 85% uh, of, of the re- uranium um, they produce. And uh, they've got uh, very active uh, businesses in the United States and other places as well that are responsible for really important parts of that whole supply chain, whether it's um, you know in, in enriching or, or other things. I think the reason that we're seeing uh, the share prices of these companies go up, and it's great to see that for Cameco, is um, because of some of the policy announcements we've seen, particularly out of places like uh, the United States with the Biden administration coming in. There's a, a strong commitment to nuclear there that will continue. And uh, similarly, we're seeing that in other countries. I think, Adrian, at the end of the day, it's, it's becoming just overwhelmingly clear to people with the in- increased pressure of, of climate change and at the rate at which we're going to have to decarbonize that there is no net zero 2050 without a lot of new nuclear. And so I, I suspect we'll continue to see positive policy developments around uh, around new build nuclear.
0: You know, when I was uh, 15 in Saskatchewan, I can't remember the name of the group, maybe you remember it, but there was a big fear around nuclear, but I mean, that was the 90s. So uh, I think you're right. I think these SMRs, I think, is an opportunity to rebrand the whole space. Now, before you go, can you tell me about other applications of nuclear? Like we, you touched on nuclear medicine, for example, like... Can you just talk about some of what's possible with medicine and how nuclear contributes to medicine?
1: Sure. I mean in in the Canadian context, well we're we're most familiar with it uh, because of the isotopes, the medical isotopes that uh, that our industry produces. For, the isotopes are used for different things. Much of it is used in uh, sort of diagnosing, diagnosing things like cancer and and uh, put into people. And some of it is used, a great deal of it is used to do sterilization of things like uh, one-time use medical uh, supplies, whether it's, you know, scalpels or or gloves or uh, needles, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Canada is the world leader in terms of supplying very many of those different types of isotopes. I think uh, cobalt-60, uh, for example, is re- produced in Canada is responsible for Sterilizing seventy percent of the world's one-use, you know, medical supplies, and we used to we used to only do this in our um, sort of nuclear laboratories on a very small scale, but because of the innovation that's going on in the sector right now, um, in particular with uh, our plants here in Ontario and some of the uh, more innovative companies in in uh, Ontario like Canetrix and uh, BWXT. They've developed ways of producing uh, isotopes, different types of isotopes, from the main reactors themselves without interrupting um, operations. And, the, and so, the scale on which we're able to start producing these isotopes now and exporting them uh, globally is is climbing exponentially. And the um, the importance of those things, particularly for uh, cancer patients and others, is is really quite quite remarkable. So a lot of innovation going on in that space is, as well.
0: It sounds like some really important stuff is going on there. So as we go, is there anything uh, that I miss or that you'd like to discuss that we haven't touched on?
1: Yeah, I think I'd just like to touch again on um, on the small mo- modular reactor component of this and how it relates to conventional reactors. And I'm gonna I'm gonna stick in the Canadian context for for a moment. But when you look at the history of nuclear in Canada, and as I said, we've been doing this for about 60 years now, uh, Ontario, our largest province, it pulled off the world's largest carbon reduction initiative in Ontario when we made the decision to phase out our our coal fired electricity plants. And we were able to do that in a a very short period of time, replacing 90% of the coal fired electricity generation with additional nuclear capacity here in Ontario. So the biggest uh, carbon reduction initiative uh, in the world. And that's the kind of transformation that you really can't achieve uh, with any other type of electricity source. And I see these small modular reactors, this next generation of nuclear, which is you know very scalable plants that are mass produced that can be, Um, financed uh, more easily and produce very high temperature, clean heat and and clean electricity as a a very important step in bringing nuclear out to all different sectors, uh, including, you know, off-grid sectors like mining or extraction industries like oil and gas. And because of the high quality heat that they produce, which allows you to produce fuels like hydrogen, it really means that nuclear has become a bridge between electricity and fossil fuels, at least in terms of cleaning up electricity and cleaning up fuels. And I think that's gonna be a real game changer for, for Canada and the world. And I hope that our Canadian leadership here translates not only to success at home and in sectors like mining, but also allows us to bring these solutions to the rest of the world.
0: Absolutely. And finally on that very point, how how is Canada doing globally in this nuclear conversation? Are we at the forefront or are we playing catch up? Like where are we?
1: We are absolutely a first mover in the free world, I'll call it the free world, and it's because of our our long experience in in uh, nuclear power, but also because of this incredible Um, incredibly healthy nuclear ecosystem that we have right now that's based on this big uh, refurbishment project that we've got going on. It's allowed us to do a lot of innovation in the uh, small modular reactor space and in the nuclear medicine space. And it's the reason why we've got 12 different technologies that are going through the review and licensing process right now, some of them very close to, uh, to being approved. So, we have some very specific uh, business plans in place that are rolling out these small modular reactors in three different phases. And we're in uh, deep discussions now with the federal government to have them uh, match the money that industry is bringing to the table. And if we get that strong signal from the federal government over these coming weeks, I think Canada will be uh, will really be a leader in in this new technology.
0: Well, hopefully they're listening to this podcast. I know we do have some government people that uh, listen in, so hopefully they listen to this. John Gorman, president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's a fascinating conversation. And uh, yeah, Merry Christmas, and I hope you have a nice uh, holiday.
1: Merry Christmas to you and your your listeners as well, Adrian. That was a a really, really pleasant conversation. I was glad to sit down and chat with you.
0: That was a lot of fun. And uh, there's nothing like getting an expert. Love the experts. And we have another one coming up next week. I'm going to leave it a little Christmas surprise for you. But he is a very well-known figure in the industry. As long as everything goes to plan, I will be interviewing him next Monday for next Tuesday's show. So if you want to help out the podcast, feel free to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Directory. Until next week, take care.